Ephesians chapter 6, and we're on our last sermon, the third sermon on the sword of the Spirit. And today we're going to be looking at the sword of the Spirit as an offensive weapon. We looked at the defensive of it. We looked at the importance of biblical interpretation. We looked at the importance of sola scriptura and using creeds and confessions and interpretation. And now we're going to look at it as an offensive weapon. I'm going to read from chapter 6, verse 17. <clears throat> I take the helmet of salvation... And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, the Word of God is an offensive weapon when it is accompanied by the power or efficacy of the Holy Spirit. And its offensive use is demonstrated in a number of biblical teachings. Okay, we're going to look at dominion, we're going to look at a number of things. First, the Word of God presented and taught is the only manner in which the kingdom of God is spread throughout planet Earth. <clears throat> Here's uh, Mark 16, 15 to 16. Go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. <clears throat> Matthew 28, 18 to 20. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And then Revelation 19, 13, and 15. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. Now the passage in 19 takes place at the first coming of Christ. It begins with the resurrection, not with the second coming. Now Yahweh's perceptive plan for Adam and Eve before the fall was for them to live in terms of the word of God. Revelation. Populate the earth and develop a worldwide godly civilization that of course loved and obeyed God. Marriage. The dominion mandate is given to a married couple. What are they told to do? Have children, populate the earth, have dominion. Now, because of sin, the task of godly dominion could only come to pass through a Savior who, through his vicarious suffering and death, eliminated the guilt and penalty of sin. Okay, it's salvific. Now, Jesus also lived a sinless, perfect life, fulfilling the covenant of works and meriting eternal glorified life for his people, the sheep, the church, the elect. Christ's salvation victory is spread through the preaching of the gospel and the discipleship of believers through the teaching of the whole counsel of God. The sword is the word of God. The sword of the Lord, the sword of the word, which begins with the gospel, message of salvation, and recreation in Christ, is necessary for once men fell, he sought to establish a worldly, ungodly dominion through human autonomy. Apart from the Lord's salvation and his revelation. Those who believe in Christ are called upon to live out the original purpose of man, to exercise a godly dominion by obeying the word and being covenant keepers. And this is not taught enough today, even in reform circles. It's taught by theonomists, and it's one of the great aspects of theonomy. 
Theonomy had some bad aspects in the area of worship and so forth, and of course a lot of the Theonomists became, you know, they adopted this heretical view of justification, shepherdism, or the federal vision. But this is actually a very biblical teaching, and it's very important. And it was held by Calvin and others. It wasn't just a view of the Theonomists. The church of the preaching of the gospel, the sacraments, and the teaching of the whole counsel of God is crucial in this task for men to have to be trained in sanctification and covenant keeping. Christians have been given the sword of the Spirit not to imitate the satanic world order or to live in a false pietistic isolation, but rather to win back the world for Christ. So we have to apply it to ourselves, we have to apply it to our families, we have to apply it to the best of our ability to our callings in life, and develop a distinctly Christian culture, a distinctly Christian, explicitly Christian society. The Great Commission is not simply a command to evangelize and plant churches, as crucial as these things are, and they're the beginning of everything, but it is a command to disciple whole nations so that satanic worldviews and law orders are replaced with a Christian worldview as well, well as biblically ordered institutions and law orders. Every civil government and every social order must bow the knee to Jesus Christ and his law. <coughs> and if you don't believe me, go back and read all the read Psalm chapter 2. I mean, uh, read Psalm 2. Read Psalm 110, read Psalm 78, read some of these messianic psalms. The gospel goes beyond the four walls of the church. It's supposed to penetrate every aspect of society. Our goal as Christians and members of a church is to subdue all nations and all things to Christ in his perfect authoritative word. The king over kings and lord over lords strikes the nations with a sword that is divine or special revelation, and he judges them in history with a rod of iron. And here's Psalm 2, 6-11. This is a prophecy about what happens at the resurrection of Christ. I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord, Yahweh, has said to me, that is Christ, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me. And I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and trembling, and rejoice with trembling. goes on to say, kiss the sun. Pay homage to the sun. Nations! Political leaders, presidents, kings, queens, vice presidents, congress, judges. Kiss the sun. Acknowledge the sun. Bow the knee to Christ. It's very comprehensive. The kingdom of grace is established by God's truth, spreads by the Redeemer's truth, and is regulated by the Lord's truth. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs 1.7, and knowledge, Proverbs 2.5. God's kingdom does not spread by physical weapons of violence, but through regeneration and conversion as the Holy Spirit makes the gospel, gospel as efficacious. Think of the Roman Empire, the most powerful empire in the world to that point. Uh, They had all of North Africa, they had Egypt, they had the whole Middle East, they had all of Asia Minor, they they extended into Spain, they had France, they had 
southern part of Germany. They had half of Great Britain. I mean, it was a huge empire. And they persecuted Christians because they said Jesus is Lord and Jesus had authority over Caesar. And they killed Christians and they persecuted them mercilessly. Um, but the Roman Empire became Christian Europe. How did that happen? Did the Christians have a revolution with arms? No. They preached the gospel, they planted churches, and people became converted. And that's how we got Christian Europe. Now, yeah, Christian Europe was far from perfect. That's true. But compared to the Roman Empire, with its huge amount of slaves, and its branding people on the face, and its going around killing people, it was a great improvement, believe me. <clears throat> the unregenerate man functions according to human autonomy and therefore cannot know any fact correctly. It is for this reason that paganism and secular humanism always establishes satanic kingdoms of man. Man's self-glorification and autonomy always leads to antinomianism and tyranny. Always. But training in the word leads to self-government under Christ. Christians exercise dominion as they apply the word of God to their families, callings, and goals. As beings created in God's image, dominion is a basic urge of our existence. Men are defined by their calling, by their work. And for a man to reject that, that's a basic urge of our creation. <clears throat> but only true believers subject human autonomy, reject human autonomy, which perverts nations and societies into kingdoms of Satan. Now, there are two main reasons as to why churches today reject the idea of a comprehensive godly dominion through the word. Okay, they say, well, the dominion mandate, man fell, that doesn't apply anymore. Well, they sure don't know their Bibles. Christ is called the second Adam. Christ fulfills the covenant of works where Adam failed. Christ commands that whole nations are discipled. And the prophecies speak of whole nations being discipled. What Adam did, Christ comes to undo. And, he, and it will occur progressively in history, but of course it will only occur perfectly when he comes again at the second coming. Number one. There is an embracing acceptance of religious or worldview pluralism which is rooted in the myth of neutrality. This is the idea that Christian teaching and theology belongs behind the walls of a church, but is not needed for the public square, the civil magistrate, the courts of law, science, business, or centers of education. These things, we are told, can be taken care of in a good, moral, valid, epistemological manner through natural law. And that, this view is extremely popular in America, where the people who gave us the Constitution, and it's great, it's probably the best in the world today, but they left Christ out of the Constitution. They made it, they made it pluralism, not a Christian pluralism, not saying, well, we're going to have Lutherans and Episcopalians, and we're going to have uh, Baptists, and we're going to have Presbyterians. No, no, it's not a pluralism of Christian groups, which they could have done. It's a pluralism for everything. Atheists can serve in the civil government. Buddhists can serve in the civil government. Muslims. Anybody. You can believe anything you want. 
and you have the right to vote. You can believe any satanic garbage you want, and you can serve in the government. And that's based on the idea of pluralism. We'll leave religion out of it, and we'll have a secular civil government, and everything will be fine. And that was their thinking. But because men are depraved sinners and have an axe to grind against the true and living God, there can be no neutrality in any area of life. Now, the idea of neutrality seemed to work quite well when the vast majority of people in the United States believed in a Christian world and life view. Their ethical, whether they were Christians or not, they lived in terms of that worldview. They believed there was a God, one God. Uh, they believed in a moral law that was transcendent, that was unchanging, and they lived in terms of that. Was there a lot of corruption and terrible things? Absolutely. But they all lived and functioned according to that worldview, even though we had a pluralistic political system, and generally things worked pretty fine. Yes, there was a lot of corruption. If you read about the great uh, super-rich magnets in the late 1800s, these guys, uh, they had mistresses, and they were immoral and all sorts of things. But people were, people were always immoral, but people kept it hidden. They had to keep it in the closet because the Christian world and life view dominated society. Nowadays, you can do whatever you want. You can you know, be a complete sex pervert, and people don't care. In fact, they praise you for it. <clears throat> the Christian ethical system was held and taught virtually everywhere. In, in, in the public schools in the 1800s, they had prayer. They, had, they would say the Lord's Prayer. They had, they had to memorize the Ten Commandments. They had biblical lessons. Uh, that was stopped in the 1950s. Well, then it changed after the 20th century to where they were, they were allowed to do that after school was over and they'd have Christian ministers come in and teach. And that was completely destroyed in the 1950s. And then in the early 60s, prayer was excluded from schools. But such conditions not only no longer apply, but the myth of neutrality was what allowed satanic, satanic ways of thinking to progressively control all these crucial aspects of society and culture in the first place. And if you look at progressives, liberals, Satanists, secular humanists, atheists, you know, skeptics, how they operated in the past when Christians, most people were Christians, or at least thought as Christians, how they operated in the past is, we want toleration. Just be tolerant. We want, you know, the freedom, freedom of speech, freedom of religion. We have these weird views. Let's all be tolerant. And of course, the first, the hippies and the progressives of the 1960s, that was their big thing, freedom of speech. Now, once they get power, they reject freedom of speech and they want to oppress Christians. And we're seeing that today quite explicitly. They don't believe in freedom of speech. They don't believe in toleration. They believe in oppression. And then we're losing freedom because the basis of true freedom, of course, is the Bible and biblical law. <clears throat> But such conditions, of course, no longer apply. But the myth of neutrality was what allowed satanic ways of thinking to progressively control all these crucial aspects of society and culture in the first place. All these totally demonic schools that teach all this uh, politically correct nonsense. Socialism, racism, they call it equity and all this stuff, all this racist nonsense. Harvard was started as a Christian school. Almost every Temple University, the school I graduated from, the college in North Philadelphia, that was started as a Baptist college. Most of these totally satanic institutions 
were started as Christian institutions. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs 9.10, and knowledge, Proverbs 1.7. Real neutrality has never existed and can never be attained. For the secular humanist commitment to autonomy as their starting point for knowledge and ethics is itself not neutral. Well, how are we going to arrive at truth? How are we going to get ethics? How are we going to arrive at a true philosophy? And they say, well, we have to a priori, before even looking at the facts, we have to reject the Bible, we have to reject Jesus Christ, we have to reject God. We have to start with human autonomy. So they, they've guaranteed that they're not going to arrive at truth. They can have surface knowledge. They can say, that's a rock. Here's the moon. Two plus two equals four. But when they get down to the meaning of things, they can't have true knowledge. It is a thoroughly satanic presupposition that a priori denies the true and living God. Today, as secular humanists have become much more epistemologically, that's a theory of knowledge, and ethically self-aware and consistent, they cannot even condemn gross, incredibly disgusting sexual perversions, and they cannot even define what a man or a woman is. They advocate people who are deluded cutting off their genitals. They advocate that. They advocate taking children and giving their hormones and then mutilating their breasts, mutilating their, uh, their parts. This is insanity. This is satanic to the very core. Yet that's where their presupposition takes them. If there is no truth, and we evolve from pond scum, and there is no reference point for meaning or ethics or knowledge, then if you think you're a uh, lesbian uh, manatee or a cow, why not? You create your own reality. You create your own truth. There is no truth. If Christians do not use the sword of the Spirit to subdue the earth so that everything is subjected to Jesus Christ and his law word, they will be persecuted and oppressed by fanatical atheists, sodomites, feminists, and gross sexual perverts. It's happening in our day. This idea of neutrality worked, worked okay for a while when everybody, when most people thought as Christians, even bad people back then, even people who were not Christians, they thought like Christians because that was the worldview that everybody was taught and everybody believed. But now that nobody believes in that anymore, um, anything goes. A refusal to carry out the full meaning and implications of the Great Commission by Christians due to a lack of faith or a belief in the wrong teachings carries with it its own covenant sanctions. There can be no neutral ground between truth and error, Satanism and obedience to God, the curse and the blessings, rebellion and loving submission. The essence of man's first sin was to usurp God's prerogative of absolute lordship and the defining of truth in order to govern his own life in terms of what he autonomously thinks is best. <coughs> and that is fatal. As man pursues and lives in terms of his independence from God, he eventually turns society into a hell on earth. Look at Russia. Look at Nazi Germany. The Soviet Union. Cuba. Autonomous man turns 
Venezuela. Autonomous man turns society into a living hell of oppression. Number two. There's been an embracing of highly pessimistic defeatist eschatologies with the result that the Great Commission is either redefined or it is asserted that the Savior's command will fail in history. Postmillennialism has largely given way among Christians to premillennialism and amillennialism. With premillennialism, the Great Commission totally fails and Jesus' rule on earth can only be established at the second bodily coming of Christ. And they have all these sayings. You know, don't polish brass on a sinking ship. Don't try to have Christian institutions. Don't work to change the laws in society. You're wasting your time. Go to your prayer closet. Have nice piety at home. Society's going to go to hell in a handbasket. There's nothing you can do about it. Don't try to change it. Now the problem with that view, of course, is that it contradicts what the Bible tells us we have to do. The Great Commission. And even honest amillennialists, I used to have a tape series from Al Martin's old seminary. I don't even know if it still exists. But the professor of theology who was giving a lecture against postmillennialism in favor of amillennialism, he admitted, in the question and answer period, he admitted that the Great Commission required us to try to have Christian nations. At least he was honest. Amillennialism interprets the Old Testament prophecy, the victory passages, when there's many of them, as either hyperbolic exaggerations and or simply applies them to the consummate kingdom. And you've got that famous passage in Isaiah where if you die at the 100, it says if you're 100 years old and you die, that's going to be considered a tragedy that you died so young. And it's going to talk about peace and all these wonderful things. And uh, that that's supposedly applies, all millennials, most of them say that applies to the consummate kingdom. Well, it's awfully weird that they would be talking about people dying and women getting pregnant and having children in the consummate kingdom. The fact that Christians and churches are found in certain co in countries throughout the world is viewed by most amillennialists as a fulfillment of the Great Commission. Yeah, the gospel has spread incredibly. It's all It's in pretty much every country in the whole world. There's a lot of secret Christians in China. We are told that since the nations will never be Christian, um, they will never be Christian nations founded upon the gospel with Christian ethics, biblical law, and scriptural principles of civil government. The most we can hope for is some kind of pluralism where a purely secular government tolerates Christians but does not oppose and persecute them. And years ago, this must be about 20 years ago now, there was a guy, a minister in the OPC, who was, and I think he was defrauded, I don't know what happened, but he was arguing that we need to be friendly and have laws legalizing homosexuality because we don't want to be persecuted. <laughs> and that's where this, this attitude leads. It leads to compromise. It leads to syncretism. It leads to declension. This way of this kind of thinking dominated churches throughout the 20th century and has resulted in our culture and law order becoming increasingly evil and demonic. And it happened simultaneously. It was a complete disaster. On the one hand, you had liberalism, modernism, take over all the mainline denominations, which taught the Bible's not the word of God, it's full of myths. And so they all adopted secular humanism and they all adopted everything science said, hook, line, and sinker, as though it was absolute truth. And now we know that most of what science was teaching is not even true. 
macroevolutionary theory, if you actually study it carefully, it's, so, it's got so many problems, it's obviously false. Theories about the way the universe evolved. They just set up this giant telescope in the sky, this new one, and they're, all their theories are being overthrown by the facts. They say that if you look toward the edge of the universe, you're going to see that uh, the formation of galaxies, according to their theory. Because when you look back, when you, the farther you look away, the farther you look back in time, they say. But what do they see in the edge of the, gal of the universe? Completely formed large, mature galaxies, as if everything was created instantly. They say that outside of a certain area of the planets, uh, if they're far enough away, if you have a group of uh, dust, like a ring, that has to turn into a moon. Yet they're finding planets with this phenomena out there where you've got these rings that are not evolving into moons. So all their theories are being disproved by simple observations. <clears throat> we must not allow unbiblical pessimistic eschatologies and a basic lack of faith deter us from our biblical responsibility to spiritually conquer planet Earth. You know, I'm aware of what's going on. I mean, I'm aware that there are far less people going to church today and professing Christ today than there was just 10 years ago in the United States. And in Europe, it's even worse. There are more Muslims, I think, now than there are Episcopalians in, in England. And there's a bunch of old Muslim, uh, Episcopal churches that have been turned into restaurants and bars because people don't bother going to church. They're secular now. They're atheists or agnostics or skeptics. They don't care. Yeah, things are getting terrible. And it looks like Christians will, if the Democrats ever had complete power, the Supreme Court and the Congress and the Senate and everything, Christians will be persecuted. They will be. That's a fact. But we have the prophecies. It is the word of God. And it will come to pass. And it may not happen soon, but it will happen. You have to have faith. <clears throat> The churches may be committed to neutrality, but Satanists, Communists, Socialists, and the Sodomites do not accept neutrality at all. Their goal is the complete dechristianization de of American culture, law, economics, and the family. As professing Christians have placed their head in the sand and have sent their children to Satanic state schools, the Satanists have captured the robes of society. In the 1960s, the hippies really believed that through the use of drugs and free sexuality and doing whatever you want, that there'd be a revolution and we'd have this great society of peace and liberty and wonderful freedom. Well, that didn't happen. The 60s movement gave us Charles Manson, who shows what the hippie philosophy leads to. If you have love, and it's not really defined biblically, it's just some concept, and it's a, an antinomian concept of love, and you don't believe in ethical absolutes, and you don't believe in the triune God of Scripture, the hippie movement gives you Charles Manson. It really does. Charles Manson is what the hippies, their philosophy leads to, logically. So, it didn't work. So what do they do? They said, well, what we'll do is we'll, we'll join society. You know, Timothy Leary, tune in, turn on, drop out. They says, we're not going to drop out. We're going to take over the universities. We'll all get PhDs and we'll all teach this. We'll teach communism and socialism and all this relativism in the universities and, and that they've been successful. They control the universities totally, except for the ones that are private, like Hillsdale up in Michigan. 
but they control the universities now, and they're producing complete satanic lunatics that teach it's okay to cut off the genitals of children and give them a bunch of drugs and destroy their whole lives over a subjective theory. Now, if I think I'm a, uh, a manatee, I'm not a manatee. But they believe if I really believe I am, then I really am a manatee. And you have to respect that. <clears throat> now, let's look at the word and conviction of sin. And these kind of are sub, sub things of what I've already taught. Second, the word of God is a sword that cuts the heart by convicting of sin. After Peter preached the gospel, pointing out that Jesus fulfilled messianic prophecies perfectly, and the Jews had crucified their Christ, we read Acts 2.37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Their hearts were pierced by guilt. For God's revelation showed them their sin, their guilt before God. Their question reveals that the Holy Spirit was showing them the truth about their condition through the word, and they knew they were unable to eliminate this guilt, and they needed the apostles' teaching. In response to further instruction, they expressed faith in Jesus and were baptized. So the effects of Peter's preaching was the one intended. His sermon consisted of law and gospel, and in normal cases it is always the law that first takes effect, Yet the gospel must always be preached with the law. Jesus said, you're not going to go to a physician if you, don't, if you don't think you're sick. You have to understand that your case is hopeless and you're damned and you're completely a rotten sinner and you cannot save yourself before you flee to Christ. And the problem with people today is they all think they're wonderful. Without the gospel, the law can only bring despair. When Paul discussed the moral law, he presented it not as something that saves, but something that convicts and points to the need of a Savior. Romans 3.19. And this is after a lengthy discussion. He's establishing that everybody, both Jew and Gentile, is guilty of sin and needs Christ. Now we know, this is Romans 3.19, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. The law shows us our sin and exposes our guilt. And if the law is not accompanied by the Holy Spirit, people will <clears throat> dismiss the law of God and they'll create their own permissive, arbitrary law. Why do homosexuals demand that everybody in society proclaim that, their that what their behavior is, that they're proud of, that we should be proud of their sodomy? We should be proud of their gerbil activities and their fisting and all these disgusting things they do. Why should we be, why should we declare it to be moral and, and, de and demand that everybody says it's great and we should be proud of it? Why do they do that? Because they're guilty. They know they're, what they're doing is absolutely wicked and they're suppressing that truth and they're demanding the opposite. Here's what Martin Luther says. The principal point of the law is to make man not better but worse. That is to say, it showeth unto them their sin, that by the knowledge thereof they may be humbled, terrified, bruised, and broken, and by this means may be driven to seek grace, and so come to that blessed seed. End of quote. 
So the Holy Spirit uses the moral law of God in Scripture to show us that we are guilty, filthy sinners that cannot save ourselves. It's a sharp, double-edged sword. It stops all humanistic, proudful boasting and self-righteousness and closes our mouths in guilt. We have no merit of ourselves to plead and no valid or honest excuses to make. Our only hope is to come to Christ as naked beggars in the dust. Only Jesus can remove our guilt and impute a perfect righteousness to our account that is acceptable to God merits eternal life. Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Nothing in my hand I bring, only to thy cross I cling. Guilty. The word of God is used by, and now we come to the word in conversion. The word of God is used by the Holy Spirit in conversion. Peter says, this is 1 Peter 1, 23 and 25b, that believers have been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, through the word of God which lives and abides forever. This is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. James also speaks of Christians being brought, this is uh, James 1.18, being brought forth by the word of truth. Now theologians speak of regeneration or the new birth in a narrow sense and in a broad sense. The narrow sense is just strictly the work of the Holy Spirit upon your heart. It's something you have nothing to do with. That you can't make yourself born again. In the Arminian view, that you God makes you born again when you first choose Christ is totally unscriptural and easily disproved. Ephesians chapter 2, we're dead in trespasses and sins, and we have to be made alive in Christ. We have to be regenerated, John 3, 3, to see the truth. So it refers to a work of the Holy Spirit directly on the heart of man, renovating, cleansing, and raising the dead heart spiritually. In James and Peter, we have the renovated heart as it comes in contact with the Word of God. And this usually comes virtually simultaneously. The Word brings life <coughs> when it is accompanied by the power of the Holy Spirit. Why did Jesus, he'd preach the gospel, and then he would say, he who has ears, let him hear. Were there some people in the audience who were deaf? No. He's talking about spiritual hearing. Those to whom God gives the ability to hear, hear and heed. The word brings life when it's accompanied by the power of the Holy Spirit, and therefore it is called the word of life, Philippians 2.16. It effectively works in believers who believe, 1 Thessalonians 2.13, and belief is a gift of God received in regeneration, Ephesians 2.8. In Acts, we read that the Lord opened Lydia's heart to heed the gospel message spoken by Paul. Acts 16, 14. Now, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Psalm 33, 6. And by the word of Christ, there is salvation and recreation of all things. By the word, we are brought out of darkness, guilt, and bondage into a state of true knowledge and light in Christ. 1 Corinthians 4, 6. For it is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So the word is effective in converting the soul, for it tells us exactly who we are and what we need. Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing 
even to the division of soul and spirit, and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Now, I was raised a nominal Roman Catholic, and I was totally an unbeliever, and I was had a totally, completely wicked lifestyle of drugs and fornication and all that stuff, and stealing and all this stuff, and lying all the time. And I didn't feel guilty at all. I was having a blast. I, I didn't feel guilt. But then when I was exposed to the gospel and the law of God, everything changed. And now I look back at that past life, and it, it just it, it's abhorrent to me. It's disgusting. The word of God is powerful as it works within us. With the spirit, it cannot fail to be living and powerful. It never fails to cut, for it has no dull edge. It always cuts from one side to the other, either bringing life and salvation or judgment and destruction. To the Christian, Jesus says, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. John 6, 63, part of our scripture reading. But to those who reject the gospel, he says, John 12, 48, the word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. If you hear the gospel and you reject it, Jesus says that on the day of judgment when you stand before him, you'll have to give an account for that. You heard the truth. You said, no thanks. I like my sin. I'll take my sin over Christ. You'll be judged for that. It sliced the consciences of its audiences savingly on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2.37, and it exposed the hatred of God and the truth when it was rejected, Acts 5.33 and 7.54. The Jews who rejected the gospel, they heard it, and they gnashed their teeth, and they wanted to kill the apostles, and they ended up killing Stephen, the evangelist. They stoned him to death. It has an edge of life and an edge of wrath, judgment, and death. 2 Corinthians 2.15 and following. It penetrates to the innermost being of man and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. When accompanied by the Holy Spirit, it reveals that our hearts are desperately wicked. Jeremiah 17.9, depraved. Psalm 58.3, and deserving of hell. It reveals that our record in God's sight is one of rebellion, iniquity, and guilt. It sheds a bright light of truth on those things that seem inaccessible. And it does so effectively, dynamically, and critically. Because of our sinful natures, because of our depravity, because of our filthiness and sin, our guilt, we are not objective about these things. Apart from grace, we're not objective at all. We're not accurate in the assessment of our own corruptions and record. I'll never forget... Uh, when I was, I had a, I had a church, and uh, we had an unsaved father of a guy who was in the church who would come and visit, and I and I would be instructed, hey, he's going to be here, preach these, hammer him with the gospel, and I preach these really detailed gospel sermons, and his 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 line was, I'm not a sinner, I'm a good person, I'm a good guy, I'm good, and there's a lot of people that think that way, you know, I'm not a murderer. I've never committed adultery on my wife. I'm a good person. But then they don't know the internality of the law. So it applies internally. And then, of course, one day he was coming home. He got apart for his lawnmower, and he got in a head-on collision and died instantly. And on the Day of Judgment, all those gospel sermons he heard, he's going to hear about that. 
It's sad. God's word is perfectly accurate, being a reflection of God's character and a record of the Lord's moral requirements and thought, word, and deed. It puts us on our knees before the bloody cross of Christ. It makes us like the man who beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Luke 18, 13. Remember one said, hey, Lord, I thank you, the Pharisee. I thank you, Lord. I'm such a righteous, great guy. I'm not like those, those Gentiles over there, those filthy Gentiles. I'm a wonderful guy. And there's in the back of the church, there, the back of the synagogue, there's the old publican who won't even look up to God. And he's doesn't, you know, he's doubting his salvation. You know, he's thinking, oh, I'm probably not even saved. I'm a rotten sinner. Oh, God, just be merciful. Jesus said that guy went way justified. The guy, the self-righteous guy was not justified. This profound and solemn truth is one that man in his fallenness does not like to face. It is damaging to his self-esteem. It destroys his proud pretensions to wisdom and competence, and it discloses the futile superficiality of all the elaborate defenses which he seeks to erect against God. Indeed, a man's knowledge of his own self, apart from grace, is faulty and inadequate. And wisdom begins in his recognition of this fact, and in the prayer that God therefore will search him and know him and reveal to him the true depths of his depravity, and also the wonders of divine grace. The word, the word, the word, the sharp sword. Has it penetrated as no word of man ever has? Into your innermost being. If the word of God has searched you out, then you cried with Isaiah, Woe is me, for I am unclean. I am undone. 6.5. And with Job, I abhor myself. 42.63. And with the publican, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Luke 18.13. Yes, the word is a sharp sword in conversion. And then, the word defeats anti-Christian enemies. As a people called out of the world, Christians need the Bible as an intellectual and spiritual weapon against secular humanists, skeptics, pagans, and heretics. Here's a great passage. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, <coughs> bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. What a great passage. We should all memorize that passage. The conflict between Christians and the men of this world who oppose Christ and his kingdom is spiritual. It's a spiritual war and must, not, and must be fought with spiritual weapons. Using physical weapons would not only be unbiblical, but futile. You can, you've seen what our military can do in the Middle East. All these people, oh, we're going to be, have a revolution, take over the government. They're fools. Our only hope is to spread the gospel. And that men would be regenerated and would bow the knee to Christ. Without that, we, there is no hope for us. The opposition to Christ, marching warriors, <clears throat> is described as strongholds or fortresses with towers. These things represent intellectual, philosophical, and religious arguments used against the gospel and the Christian world and life view. The unbelieving man's pre presuppositions or world and life view are his refuge of unbelief and hostility toward the truth. Why do you think these atheists on YouTube, and I've, I've watched their videos, and everybody, you know, oh, these guys are so brilliant. They're a genius. 
their arguments are stupid. But people are grasping because they know they're guilty and they want to keep fornicating and taking drugs and etc. The Greeks in Paul's day, with their love of Platonism and human wisdom, regarded the gospel as foolishness, Paul says. Intellectuals in our day, with their atheistic naturalism, macroevolutionary theories, and hedonism, also view biblical Christianity as complete nonsense. The Jews, because of their false views of Jesus and their apostate concept of salvation through law, hated the gospel message. Apart from a sovereign work of grace, all men are blinded by sin, and due to their innate hatred of the true God, create their own idols, no matter how absurd and irrational. Oh, you Christians, you're so stupid. You believe in creation ex nihilo. You believe that God, this infinite personal God created everything out of nothing. How crazy that is. But they believe, they believe everything came out of nothing without God. <laughs> and they're supposed to be the rational ones. The Jews, because of their false views of Jesus, hated the Christians and persecuted them relentlessly. Modern man proclaims himself to be the only source of truth, ethics, and meaning, and therefore defiantly and dogmatically rejects the truth of the gospel and special revelation. Even though the natural world clearly and continually reveals the true God, Psalm 19, 1-4, and Romans 1, 19 and following, men have dark hearts, suppress the truth, and run righteousness. They think they are wise, but they are complete fools. Their intellectual arguments against the truth are their fortresses defending their sin and unbelief. Now, in the... 18th century, the late 1800s, when everybody was adopting evolutionary theory and everybody believed it had been proved by Darwin, that it was a fact, uh, there was a crisis among Christians because they, 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 they didn't understand the nature of presuppositionalism and how people come to the facts of presupposition. They didn't understand that. Uh, and so there was a crisis. But the more science progresses... And I'm talking about their tools of looking at reality, like telescopes and archaeology and all these things. The more that we've, we've seen that everything they've told us is a lie. Macroevolutionary theory is not only impossible, it's completely disproven by archaeology. If you look at the archaeological record, fully formed creatures appear out of nowhere there's no pre there's nothing before that and then they'll take they'll take a bird that they think might be half lizard half bird and they'll be oh there's proof well, god could have created a bird that was kind of weird how's that proof but anyway the Christian is called upon to use the truth of Scripture to cast down the unbeliever's imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God the behavior <coughs> is not to assume a position of the believer. It's not to assume a position of neutrality and seek to reach the unbelieving intellect through clever philosophical arguments, but rather to stand on the whole Bible, the complete Christian world and life view, and we are not to wage war by fleshly human standard, assuming a position of intellectual autonomy. That's one of the problems of some of the apologetic methods out there. Oh, don't mention the Bible. You have to, you have to prove the Bible autonomously before you can mention the Bible. No, no, you don't. <laughs> the Bible self-authenticating. It is truth. It is the Word of God. But by preaching the true gospel and contending for the faith by standing on the 
Christian system of doctrine, the whole Christian system of doctrine, and the whole Christian world and life view. Paul did not compromise the biblical message one iota in an attempt to please the Greeks or the Jews. He knew when he preached the resurrection of Christ, the bodily resurrection, and the coming bodily resurrection of people and the final judgment, he knew the Greeks would hate that. And he didn't compromise one iota. The unstoppable divine power of the Holy Spirit will accompany the word to destroy the strongholds of Satan and unbelief. The fearless Scottish reformer John Knox would tell Christians who were fearful, with God, man is always in the majority. There was a rumor that French troops were going to come and they were going to kill the Protestants. And he was warned, don't go there, don't go to that city, you're, you're going to get killed. He had no fear. We would a contrast to people today. The preaching of the gospel and the discipling of the nations is all about a spiritual warfare for men's minds. Men build high and thick walls around their sinful lusts and idols. Every man-made philosophy or worldview is satanic and is designed to push the truth out of the picture. This American pluralism, oh, we respect all the world's great religions and we'll have an ecumenical service with George W. Bush and we'll have the Muslims and we'll have Indian shamans and we'll have Hindus and all these people up there. No, 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 no. That's complete Satanism. They're lies of the devil. They're false. Our job is to faithfully shatter such walls with biblical truth. As we point out the arbitrariness, irrationality, and absurdity of the world's views, we must emphatically preach the gospel. People must learn about creation, the fall, the moral law of God, the nature of guilt, and the need of Christ's atoning death and glorious resurrection. The goal is salvation and then progressive sanctification. Where every single false way of thinking or stronghold, as well as every false ethical principle is progressively subjected to the Lord Jesus Christ and his holy word. The verb there to lead captive is in the present tense. It's continuous, indicating that the process of warfare is currently taking place and must continue until the battle is completed, which will not be completed until the second coming of Christ. There's a great antithesis between Christ's kingdom of grace and the world's kingdom of sin and idolatry. In this contrast, the Savior, this contest, the Savior has already won the war. He's won. But in history, the church is the Lord's army progressively smashing high walls of sinful human reasonings and high towers of commitments to carnal pride as well as human autonomy. This war cannot be won by human reason against human reason. Autonomous reason. Or one man's ingenuity and philosophy against another's. You like Hegel. Well, I like Kant. You like Aristotle. Oh, no, but I think Plato's better. No, no, that's not going to work. It's funny. If you, I, I, when I studied modernism back in the seminary days, uh, all these modernist theologians, it, this guy follows Kant, this guy follows Hegel, this guy follows... It was just, they were simply mimicking and trying to Christianize pagan philosophies. The Christian warrior is not called upon to create a clever philosophy, but rather to be a faithful witness to God's truth revealed in Scripture. We are witnesses for Christ. The Christian faith is not founded on the wisdom of men, but on the historical facts of the gospel recorded in the Bible and the power of the Holy Spirit.
We are to testify to the truths of the gospel without mixing in human ideas, philosophies, ideologies, or psychologies. A professing Christian who turns to rationalism or some clever pagan philosophy lays aside the sharp two-edged sword for the wisdom of man. There's a reason that all these modernist churches just keep shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. What's the point of going to church if the Bible's not true? To listen to some lesbian or sodomite who's living a completely ungodly, wicked, immoral life talk about piety. And their version of piety, of course, is more homosexuality, more socialism, more state theft, more oppression of Christians, more abortion, more murder. He exchanges the truth for the lie, the infallible for the highly fallible, the word of the true and living God for the opinions of finite sinful men. This passage is a crucial personal application and that once we profess faith in Christ, which one professes faith in Christ, his whole way of thinking must be brought into captivity to obedience toward Christ. The old fortress of sinful human autonomy and reasonings is dismantled as our new fortress of the faith is built upon and takes its place. One's philosophical presuppositions must be thoroughly replaced by orthodox Christian theology and ethics. One's previous concept of ethics and behavior must be changed to one of complete submission to the moral law of God. You know, you see this all the time, these people. Well, you know, especially today where people are super hedonistic. Oh, I just don't have, I don't love my wife anymore. I'm, I'm going to get a divorce and get somebody new. Well, that's, first of all, that's irrelevant. What does the Bible say? Love is not primarily an emotion. Love is primarily obedience to the word of God directed toward your wife. The emotions will follow if you follow the law of God. The, the emotions will follow. But if people are going to act on emotions in that sense, and on autonomous emotions, then there'll be super high divorce rates, destruction of the family, and a lot more crime. And that's what's happening in America. Because the Bible is the word of God. It deserves our trust in everything. We must renounce our old pagan or atheist way of thinking and submit implicitly as God's obedient children to everything taught in Scripture. This process requires, and this is obvious, learning what the Bible teaches in detail. So you've got to study the Bible. You've got to read it. You've got to study it. And you want to go to a church that actually teaches out of it. Faith in everything the Bible says and a sincere submission to its doctrines and requirements. If we are serious about pulling down strongholds, we must be willing to read and study our Bibles and listen to faithful expository preaching about the Bible. You don't go to a church because it's great entertainment. This church has a great rock band. I remember a guy, when I, <laughs> when I was first a professing Christian, a friend of mine, this guy I knew, he wasn't really a friend, but he was an acquaintance. He joined, I said, why did you join that church? He says, well, they had the most comfortable seats. He says, oh, they're really good seats. I talked to another friend. Well, why do you join that church? He says, they have the best rock band I've ever seen in church. It's fun. And then when I was going door to door trying to plant a church back in the 1990s, and I would ask people questions, you know, people, the number one question I'd get, tell me about your programs. What kind of programs do you have? Tell me about your children's group. What kind of programs do you have? 
We wage war by casting on everything that opposes Christ and his rule, and then we put in practice what God requires for covenant faithfulness. The way of the world is really one of physical force and state propaganda. Empires subjugate nations with a physical sword and then maintain their empires by coercion and propaganda. Look at what Russia's doing. The people must believe in and live out lies to maintain pagan or atheistic rule. Nazi Germany, the Soviet Union, Cuba, all these nations are ruled by lies and propaganda and coercion. Jesus has no such need has no need of such methods, for he has the truth. He is the truth. And this revealed truth changes men from the inside out by the power of the Spirit. Men are not coerced from without and manipulated with clever lies, but transformed by revealed truth. What a great non-coercive way of changing the world. <clears throat> the genuine Christian position is established because it is firmly believed and loved as the crucial truth that it is. Men achieve liberty and peace with Jesus' perfect salvation, justification, and then possess a radical liberation and dominion by an unconditional surrender to our Lord and His word, sanctification. Problems arise in a Christian's personal life and in family life and in churches when professing Christians hold the beliefs and practices that are rooted in unbelieving thought. Christians gossip a lot. They don't handle things according to Matthew 18. What happens? Churches get split. False philosophies and ethics are permitted to usurp a position of influence in the Christian's intellect. This leads to syncretism with the world and ethical compromises with behavior. And this was the central problem with Israel in the Old Covenant era and has plagued the New Covenant church as well. If it is not nipped in the bud or fully repented of, it is a path to complete apostasy. The Roman Catholic Church became so apostate, it became a synagogue of Satan. And it remains that to, to this day. Yeah, they've got a lot of biblical truths. They, they say they believe in the Trinity and the divinity of Christ. And, 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 you know, when I was raised a Roman Catholic, we had to memorize the Ten Commandments and the Lord's Prayer. and They were teaching a somewhat of a Christian ethical system. But they have a false salvation and they have all kinds of idolatrous practices. The Holy Spirit works in and through the church by the Word. The Word is the sword. The Spirit of Christ is the all-powerful arm that wields it. Every spiritual conquest, all doctrinal ethical progress, and the destruction of pagan worldviews and law orders was due solely to the Spirit's application of the Word. This, and that's why these, these people who get pragmatic, oh, Trump's our Savior, Trump's going to do this, Trump's great, oh, he's, Trump's a liar. Trump's an adulterer. Trump's not a Christian. Quit worshiping him. He's a liar. Was he, was he way better president than all the Democrats and all the recent Republicans? Yes, he was a good president compared to, you know, compared to a giant pile of dog crap. He was a small pile of cat crap. But don't worship the guy. He's not a Christian. This amazing progress raises a question about the lack of influence of modern evangelicalism in American culture. And this brings us to our, we're going to end with this, some applications. If the word is a sharp double-edged sword, why has why has much of contemporary professing evangelicalism been so feeble and uninfluential on our culture? Well, there are a few reasons that we should learn from. Number one, the Bible is not taken seriously and treated as the very word of God in many churches. 
you can say that you believe the Bible, but if you don't act upon it, what kind of faith do you have? The Old Testament's revealed moral laws are regarded as non-binding and even harsh due to the influence of dispensationalism. God gives us this detailed law. Yes, there was a lot of ceremonial things in there that have been abrogated, but there's a ton of moral stuff in there. And it's just completely disregarded as, as being for a past dispensation. The very moral laws that God, that tells Christians how society should be run, are rejected for a former dispensation, and in their place we are told to follow some vague, undefined, non-perspicuous concept of natural law. This is even taught in reform circles today. Modern theories of natural law are simply a smokescreen for human autonomy. The Free Church of Scotland, which is quite strict. They're psalm singers. No, they're not anymore. They split, and then the, the bad ones are singing hymns, and they're, they're, they're going down the road of apostasy. The stricter ones are called the Free Church Continuing. They're the ones that are still maintaining biblical worship. But they passed, it was around, what was it, the late 90s, they passed a thing against theonomy. And they're, they're talking, oh, we can't have national health care. Like, you know, like it's the government's job to do that. Modern theories of natural law are a smokescreen for human autonomy. When Christians reject the laws that God himself defines as just, as moral, they will end up living under the laws of secular humanists, socialists, and sodomites. That's precisely what's happening. You don't like my law? You reject my law? You want human autonomy? You get it. Number two. There is an anti-intellectualism among modern churches where detailed exegetical and theological sermons and teaching is regarded as unnecessary, impractical, and even divisive. <clears throat> there is a false bifurcation between theology and what is regarded as practical. And that's the fallacy of black and white. Oh, there's a lot of theology. That can't be practical. Well, no, you can have both. While it is true that theology and detailed exegesis must be applied to our current situation in life, solid, biblical, detailed, theological teaching is the starting point for personal sanctification and godly dominion. Much preaching today is not only very shallow, immature, and inconsequential, but it is laced with humanistic pop psychology, self-esteem nonsense, Arminian heresy, and antinomianism. I know people, you know, I was a charismatic and I got out of it. I got saved. <laughs> I got the gospel. I got Calvinism. I got the truth. I got out of the charismatic movement. But I have, I know, like my best friend in high school, I know people that have stayed in these, these big charismatic megachurches for 30 years, 40 years. They're, they don't know any doctrine at all. They haven't learned anything in 30 years. Most evangelicals can't recite the Ten Commandments or the Lord's Prayer. We have a serious problem. When men do not stand up to serious errors and heresies, they are often attacked as unloving, divisive. Excuse me, when men do stand up to serious errors and heresies, they are often attacked as unloving, divisive, and legalistic. Look at Joel Moorcraft. <coughs> he attacked the federal vision, which is clearly heretical. Now, I know they try to couch it. They're, you know, they're, they're experts at lying and deceiving. But he preached the truth. He did something noble. He did something courageous. He should have been thanked. What happened? He lost half his church. 
and was attacked relentlessly as being unloving and a jerk when he was doing exactly what the Bible tells him he should do. The Apostle Paul would not be welcome in most churches today, for he was obsessed with biblical doctrine and discipline. Whenever he encountered an error in the church, he spent a bunch of time in his epistles refuting it and condemning it. That's, that's verboten today among churches. Don't do that. That's unloving. When I wrote a book against the Federal Vision back in, I don't know, 2003 or four, um, and uh, I was at a conference. I was selling uh, tapes. It wasn't a book yet. I just had tapes of the sermons that, the, that became the book. And uh, a minister came up to me, a pretty prominent fella, and he said, uh, you know, can't you, can't you get all the negative stuff out of here and just present it in a positive light? How do you condemn something as error as heresy and not sound negative. Tell me. Number three, there's often an attitude among professing Christians that they do not have a personal responsibility to learn the scriptures themselves and learn theology or the whole system of Christian doctrine. People apparently think that an hour and a half of teaching every week in church is enough. But one thing scripture and history teaches us is that we must learn the scriptures and the faith once delivered to the saints so that we are not deceived by false teachers. And so we can maintain our personal walk with God. Tragically, the history of the Christian church is one in which, repeatedly, churchmen have adopted false doctrines, heresies, and unauthorized practices. If believers do not personally saturate their minds with Scripture and learn good, solid Christian doctrine, they leave themselves open to the the wiles of the devil. How will they discern truth from error? What will they do if their pastor or elders start teaching or practicing something unbiblical? If a church becomes covenantally unfaithful, are they supposed to go along with a theological poison and covenant breaking? When the Federal Vision came along in 2002, Steve Slissel, very popular guy, very popular, big church, the guy down in Louisiana, Steve Wilkins, has a huge church, very popular, popular conference speaker. Doug Wilson, who's got a humongous church, very popular. People just love him everywhere. He's, he's a very charismatic guy. And he, when he's not preaching heresy, he, he's, he's a good, good communicator. He's a good preacher. When that heresy came along, which is clearly heretical, clearly anti-confessional, almost no people left their churches. Just a few families here and there. What does that show? That shows that fathers aren't doing their job and they don't know doctrine. People just go along with whatever the pastor and elders say because they don't know their Bibles, because they don't know theology. When a man says you're saved by faith and by the works that come from faith, or or faith and faithful obedience are the same things, you should be bringing that guy up on charges immediately and getting the heck out of that church. But people didn't. They went along with it. When Paul warned Timothy about the rise of heretics in the church and the need to defend the faith, he sent him directly to the scriptures. 2 Timothy 3.13 to 15a. But evil men and apostles will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things that you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you learned them. I think it was his mother, right? Lois. Was it Lois, his mother? And that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures. 
Heresies are going to come. And they're going to get worse. Go to the Scriptures, Timothy, and then we get the great statement on the Scriptures being sufficient and perfect for everything. Right after that. The Reformed Churches developed detailed, comprehensive creeds, confessions, and catechisms so everyone could be thoroughly trained in solid, orthodox Christian teaching and theology, not just ministers or elders. They have the shorter catechism for little children. They have the larger catechism for adults and teenagers. They were developed, yeah, they were developed to be used in the churches for teaching, but they were developed for Christians to learn. Do you know the larger catechism? Do you know the Shorter Catechism? Do you know the Confession of Faith? They're there for you to learn. Parents must teach their children and individuals must study the Bible on their own. Number four. And I, I love the thing. The, the, the people in Scotland, the, the First and Second Reformations, the people, were so, the people that became dedicated Presbyterians and Covenanters. <coughs> the King of England... I think it was Archbishop Laud was the main guy at the time. He sent a group of bishops down into Scotland to preach their view of church government and their view of worship to the people. And they came back and they said it, it, it was a complete failure. They said these peasants, these farmers, they know their Bibles better than we do. They know theology better than we do. They, everything we said they refuted perfectly. I mean, you know, paraphrasing, obviously. That's the way Christians have to be. When you hear something unbiblical, you should know about it immediately and call the elders on the carpet. And if they don't repent, you shouldn't be in that church. <clears throat> Number four, as noted, there has been a widespread acceptance of the myth of neutrality among professing Christians in churches. Even though Christian parents have a strict moral obligation to raise their children in the nurture, discipline, and admonition of Jesus Christ, Ephesians 6, 4 and Deuteronomy 6, 5 to 15, which requires an explicitly Christian education, the vast majority of professing Christians place their children in atheistic, satanic, pro-sodomite, statist public schools. One should not be surprised if the rates for apostasy among church children are exceptionally high. And I used to have an article, it's 20 years old now probably, but uh, Gallup did a poll. And by the time, especially kids who go to pagan high school and then they go to pagan universities, by the time they graduate from college, it's like 60%, 70% have rejected the faith. That's just shocking. That's shocking. I can understand 10, 20% if you're doing your job. That, you know, Abraham had problems. Godly people have children that go apostate. That's, that's very common. But 70%? When Christians are unwilling to take the time to train their children in the biblical world and life view and are too cheap to send their children to a real Christian school, then they, have the future of our they hand the future of our nation over to secular humanists who are Satanists. There's a great statement. I, I should have looked it up. I think it's in one of... He said, look, I'm, Hitler, I'm paraphrasing. He said, look, I don't care what you think. I don't care what you think of us Nazis. The NSA, NSA, SAP, or whatever it was called. The Nazis. I don't care what you think. We're going to get your children. We're going to own the future. And that's the way secular humanists, they completely control our schools now. 
You went to, yeah, you you went to a public school in Nebraska in 1855 and they had a they had a Bible class and they started the school with prayer and they said the Lord's prayer and they memorized the 10 commandments. That's gone, man. Now they're taught socialism, they're taught that whites are evil. They're taught to be racist. They're taught that sexuality, being a complete sexual pervert is great. There is no neutrality. The Bible speaks to every area of life, and we must learn what it says so we can apply it to every area of life. To refuse to do so simply means that people will be trained with something different and contradictory to the Bible. <clears throat> if every professing Christian in this nation would study their Bibles and pull all of their children out of the public schools tomorrow, there would be a revival probably. I think, what is it, 40% of professing evangelicals vote for Democrats? Something like 40%? People who teach that homosexuality is great, homosexual marriage is great, murdering babies is great, state theft and lying and propaganda is great, and they vote for these people? Well, in conclusion... The scriptures are inspired, sufficient, perfect, infallible, and fully able to meet all of our spiritual needs. We need to believe this great truth and live in terms of it. Do not substitute a dull, wooden, man-made sword for the true one that God has given you. Do not think and live your life as if <coughs> you believe the scriptures are not absolutely necessary and a precious gift from God. That's wrong. Think and live your life as if you believe. i got to rewrite that sentence. The point is, is live your life, if you say you believe the scriptures, live your life as though you really believe that. You know, when Bibles were unavailable, when, when a book would cost a couple thousand dollars back in the old days, before printing, they would have a Bible in a church with a big chain so people couldn't steal it. And people would, oh, let me, please, let me look at it. Let me read it. Now, you know, nowadays everybody's got like four or five Bibles in their house and it collects dust when people would practically die to read the Bible in the old days. Do not lean on weak, imperfect, impotent weapons of the flesh. God has com commended the sword to you as perfect, giving the knowledge of salvation to make us thoroughly equipped for every good work. Let us view it and treat it as it really is. So there's the sword of the Spirit. Pretty important. And we've seen that these things all are interrelated. The armor and the sword and everything's interrelated. <clears throat> Let us pray. Father, we thank you. What, a, what an amazing sword you've given us. Razor sharp. Stronger than titanium. Cuts both ways. Perfect. Sufficient. Infallible. Inerrant. Inspired. Oh Lord, give us the love of your word that we would study it and learn it guide our minds by the Spirit so that we would interpret it correctly and give us the will to obey it and apply it to our lives every single day. In Jesus' name, amen.